0: Hey everyone, welcome back to Searching the Sacred. We are in season number six, and we are excited to dive into 1 Samuel chapter four. Lisa, take it away.
1: I'm going to read verses 19 through 22, and this is in the New King James Version. Now his daughter-in-law, Phineas's wife, was with child, due to be delivered. And when she heard the news that the
2: ark of God was captured, And that her father-in-law and her husband were dead. She bowed herself and gave birth. For her labor pains came upon her. And about the time of her death, the women who stood by her said to her, Do not fear, for you have borne a son. But she did not answer, nor did she regard it. Then she named the child Ichabod, saying, The glory has departed from Israel, because the ark of God has been captured, and because of her father-in-law and her husband. And she said, The glory has departed from Israel for the ark of God has been captured. Okay. We are in a random story from the Hebrew scriptures, which is
1: sometimes our jam of like, let's find a little random story. Let's see what we see in it. Because a lot of times these are the ones that we haven't been exposed to, that haven't gotten airtime in our flannel graphs and curriculums. And, um, And they're there. Why are they there? What do they have to say to us? So um, we were sort of joking about doing this one. And then we landed on, actually, let's have this conversation. (laughs) So uh,
2: that's what we're going to do. First thoughts? I was just surprised because who, Ichabod, I didn't know. (laughs) I've never heard this story. I've
1: never heard a sermon. I've never I don't even know that I've read the passage, even though like
2: I've read through the Bible. Like there's no reference point for me of ever reading this passage, even though I've like read through the Bible. None. Like none.
0: I don't know. Now his daughter-in-law, the wife of Phineas, like who are we talking about? Was pregnant, Mm -hmm. about to give birth? Ichabod? I mean, and then is this a person of any significance moving forward? Is Ichabod birth like, I don't know, somebody important? Like, Marry somebody? It's just a weird, random story. I get the part before it. It's the death of Eli. He was like a priest and the one that Samuel was, you know, given over to or whatever and like put in charge of. So I get the death of Eli being an important thing, but this is random stuff. Thanks for taking us there, Steph. Way to go.
2: (laughs) That was Lisa's fault i'll take it i think it's fun to go to places that are weird all right so let's get weird what are we talking about here well what i loved about this is sort of going right for something that seems like it's at the heart of it
1: to me which is that the entire chapter before this is about all those things that you talked about jason the death of eli the death of phineas the death of of hopney samuel's rising up as a as a prophet in the midst of all of that. And it's really easy to forget all of the lives happening around those central people and how what is happening to them affects the people around them, particularly women. So Phineas dies, but Phineas had a wife who was pregnant at the time of his death. And so lest we just read over these deaths, like, oh, good, God is, there's justice happening and there's a new prophet rising up. Actually, this death affected somebody
0: really personally. Well, let's pause there before we get into all that. Like, who is Phineas and why is that an important name? Because that even is like, I kind of think I know, but I probably don't.
1: Yeah. Beyond just Phineas and Ferb.
0: (laughs) Yeah. TV show. (laughs)
1: Like the name association with this passage between Ichabod and Phineas is not, is not
2: biblical. (laughs) Not biblical.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Um, Okay. So let's talk about um, the people. So um, we meet Samuel and first, so first Samuel chapter one is about the birth of Samuel. So that's the story of Elkanah and Hannah, who are Samuel's um, parents they dedicate Samuel to be a prophet to the Lord. So they drop him off with the priest. The high priest is Eli. And so in first Samuel three, are we're, we're seeing his interaction with Eli, the priest, Hopney and Phineas are Eli's sons. And a part of the hope coming through Samuel is that it, it addresses before this point that Phineas and Hopney do not follow the ways of the Lord.
2: Yeah. So um, I'm, like for Samuel verse Chapter 2, verse 12. Now the sons of Eli were corrupt. They did not know the Lord. So that's interesting interesting that the priests, like the priests, the priests' sons did not know the Lord and were misbehaving. Maybe that's part of like pastor's kids.
0: (laughs) Okay. But also pastor's kids in our generation do not have to become pastors, whereas priests' kids in that time were expected to become the next priest. So, Cause it was like a lineage that was passed down because it's like a family thing, not a like go to up to university. So you can become this kind of thing. It was expected of hop Hopni right. And Phineas to become priests. And they were even at one point, I think earlier in the chapter with the Ark of the covenant. And so they were clearly doing something priestly or expected to. Yeah. And yet they don't follow this faith. And we don't know if that's like a, they didn't get the right instruction or they didn't pay attention or they chose to leave it all together. Cause they didn't, they didn't want to. Right.
1: So yeah. When we're earlier in chapter four, I mean, there's gosh, there's a bunch of questions that I want to dive into there, but let's just keep setting the stage for what's happening and then go back to some of them about like, what do you do as a people? If, if your priest doesn't actually know the God that they're connecting you to, Actually, does feel like a lot of pastors, if I'm honest.
2: Ooh. Like
1: how many how many pastors do you have? Well, okay. Here's here's I'm gonna, okay. I, I guess we are gonna go there now because I started going there.
0: <laughs> yeah, you Let's did. There. You just I'm went going. like Let's you go like going. opened the door and said, <laughs> "I'm coming in."
1: Okay, so years ago at a conference, I heard a speaker at a conference, which was pretty bold, say. If the Holy Spirit left our churches, would we notice?
2: Hmm.
1: And his claim as a speaker was that most of our churches, those represented at that conference, have been based, had been built up and grown based on good pr- business practices, not necessarily based on the movement of the Spirit. And what he was challenging is we have lost our ability to see the difference between what God is doing and what good business skills and leadership skills are doing. And I don't know how many pastors it is, but certainly there are churches yes. that look good that have been built based on those things and and not based on what God is doing.
2: Yeah, that's fair.
1: Mm-hmm. And there are certainly other churches where it is based on what God is doing. But can we tell the difference? How do we tell the
2: difference? How do we call our leadership to accountability on their relationship with God? It's really complicated. <laughs> yeah. Why is it complicated, Lisa? Um, it's a lot of power and I probably ego, I would say, and not in a way that like ego is always bad, but there's a certain self-preservation, I think, that pastors learn how to like, you have to, there's a certain, there's a certain level of like shield that you have to kind of
1: to be able to preach and to say things that are going to maybe not feel great for everybody, or people are
2: going to disagree with you, or I, there's a lot of different things where people will leave or come. <laughs> there's a lot of pressures to figure out what's what. And sometimes I think in the, there's a balance in learning How much do you let in and how much do you hold out? That is just, it's super nuanced and difficult. And if we look at things that are handed down by bloodline versus things that are earned outside of bloodline, like in this particular case, we're talking like a bloodline, you get the job. That feels even more complicated. Like, what do you, how are you going to argue that? How are you going to push against something that's you're right by blood i can't i can't change that part
0: mm-hmm. yeah i think i think another way of talking about this <clears throat> or another so i think sometimes we see churches like the pastors this dynamic speaker they create this environment they tap into something culturally they you know have good business practice the thing explodes it grows they get the good band they they do all the things and it just becomes this kind of cultural moment and everybody's flocking to it And, and in that scenario, you're either bought in or you just go somewhere else, right? Like you, you kind of, you're, you're, you're choosing, but if you're like my parents church, which has been around for like, you know, forever, and you've been going there for 40 years and your pastor retires, and then the denomination, you know, hires a new pastor, your church hires a new pastor, and you can do all the interviewing you want and you can do all the, whatever you want. But if they get in there and they're like not great and they're not healthy or they start taking you in a direction you didn't want to go, you, you're not just like, ah, cool, we'll just go somewhere else because, you know, we're not here. We're not, you know, not like this is, this is, this is your church. This is where you've invested 40 years of your life. This is where you, have you like literally helped build the thing. You've seen four other pastors go through and to now have somebody trying to change the identity of who you are to. to take it in a way that you don't think is healthy would be like kind of horribly devastating um, mm-hmm. and hard to recover from without causing a lot of pain. Um, and and sometimes you get sucked into it because maybe there's this tone of, well, don't question the Lord's anointed. And this is, you know, they were trained and, you know, they were anointed and they were blessed and we just have to listen to them because they're right all the time. And so, um, yeah, I think questioning authority like that can be so hard. Well,
1: and I love that energy that you're bringing because that maybe that actually helps us understand some of what's happening with with Samuel in terms of the people of Israel at the point of first Samuel have been in the land a long time. They've made it through all of this time period of the judges. And they've got a rhythm, they've got a routine of what they're doing. Sometimes it's gone well, sometimes it's gone poorly, but they understand something about how to live. And they've got priests, they've got judges, and Samuel comes along. And at the end of 1 Samuel 3, what it says about Samuel is that as Samuel grew, grew the Lord was with him, all of Israel from Dan to Beersheba knew that Samuel was established to be a prophet of the Lord. Mm-hmm. But he's the first prophet like that. So there have been like Moses was a prophet. So he's not the first prophet in certain ways. But in, in terms of like being Israel's prophet, he's the first person to have that role in the land. And so they've never experienced that before. And he's sort of throwing things into upheaval, perhaps. Like people are excited that the Lord is with them. But also like, what do we do with his word? And chapter four starts out with the word of Samuel
2: came to all Israel. Because he's also like, he's, he's direct, like he's being raised by Eli. Like he is given, like he's given to, to the Lord's service through Eli. So he's also like deeply ingrained and deeply understands the inner workings of what I've always, like I, well, I call the church is the hot dog company. Like it's making hot dogs, which is great. Everybody loves a hot dog until you know what it's made of. And then you're like, I don't know if I want the hot dog. Which feels like, for me, that's like how church has kind of felt sometimes. Like, I don't want to know what's happening behind the scenes. And, I, like, it's interesting that, like, that's how Samuel's in. It's Samuel doesn't stay being raised by his mom and his dad. He doesn't stay in that household. He doesn't stay. It's a little bit removed. Samuel's dropped in. And is witnessing the whole thing. Mm-hmm. And it's just at the beginning of the people hearing Samuel's voice
1: in the midst of all of that. So how much do they trust Eli? How much do they trust Phineas? How much do they trust Hapni? Is sort of a, a maybe a question at this point. But then the beginning of chapter four is so telling to me because so what's happening at the beginning of chapter four is it says Israel went out against the Philistines to battle and pitched beside Ebenezer. And the, so they're like facing off with the Philistines. And they're scared. Israel was smitten before the Philistines, my translation says. Yeah. And so then they say, like, why has the Lord smitten us? Let's go fetch the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord out of Shiloh. And so the people go to Shiloh. And Phineas and Hopni are there with the Ark. And Phineas and Hopni bring the Ark to the battlefield. And what I'm thinking about is how
2: are the people thinking of the ark and how are me and Phineas treating the ark? And what does that say about where all the people are? Like to me, this feels like a lucky charm. Yeah. Like what happens when God has become a lucky charm? That you fetch when you're losing. Mm -hmm. And when the priests are on board with that way of thinking about God. Yeah. Well, it's like the roles have reversed. Like we're going to tell God what to do and when to do it and how to do it. Mm-hmm. And when the ark first gets there, the Phil- they like cheer. And then the Philistines are afraid because they hear the cheering
1: and they think, oh, the ark must be here. But then the battle ends with the Philistines
2: stealing the ark because God doesn't show up, and when the ark is taken, Hotmi and Phileas, Phineas are slain.
0: Well, that's a moment. Well, it's hard because the ark is this interesting thing throughout the book of like Joshua and Judges, where like the ark kind of does pave the way. For their settling of the land and it does seem to have a presence about it like god is with them and with the ark and it's this sacred thing it's not just a lucky charm it's actually it is something there is something about it that is beyond just a box that carries around stuff that's important to them there seems to be something about it um and i i would i would this is for maybe another podcast, but it, it's almost like okay, how were they holding, or how was the ark presented earlier in Joshua and Judges, versus how are Phineas and Hophni um, holding or utilizing the ark in this circumstance? Uh, you know, I would I would wonder, is it is it being used as like, uh, hey, this will advance us? As opposed to, is this really what God wants us to do? Is it, um, is it a sense of like, hey, the ark goes before us so that justice will come, or in this case, is the ark going before us so that we can conquer our enemy and make them our slaves, Um, and that not being an actual representation of justice? Like, I'm so curious to see what how the ark is utilized because it seems to be a central character in the story.
2: Well, yeah, because. it's one of those things that's curious that the arc doesn't begin the pro like they go to battle without the arc and when they're losing is when the arc comes out so like it's like how do you decide who's making that choice
0: indiana jones
2: <laughs> and now i know i'm thinking about indiana jones too <laughs>
1: Well, it's, you know, okay, but that reminds me of, we, we did a, um, we did a study, Forty Orchards not long ago on, on Joshua 6 and the Battle of Jericho. Um, I was in a conversation about that. And what we were paying attention to was what God was saying and what Joshua was saying and how they weren't the same things. And this question, when we think about the ark and the battle and how it's a central role, like what is getting lost in translation with how the leaders are using it as compared to what God is saying? Because, like in that particular story, God does tell Joshua to march the ark around the city for, before the walls tumble. God does not tell Joshua to kill anybody. Um, that's Joshua's interpretation of the next step after the walls fall. That's not what, and so this question of what role was the Ark meant to play and what role did humans have the Ark play and how this many generations
2: down from those stories, what does it become? Do they still have the heart of it somewhere in there or has it just become that symbol of victory?
0: Yeah, that's a really, I love that question because if you read the response of the Philistines, they seem to have a history in mind,
2: Mm
0: -hmm. you know, because it's woe to us for nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us. Who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. Take courage and be men, O Philistines, in order not to become slaves to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. And so they apparently have a narrative that, yeah, God is going to fight their battles for them. God is going to win. But then there's this like question about slavery and it makes me wonder like what else have they heard about the way that the Israelites have been going about their time in the promised land because if they're going around making friends or compatriots with everybody and creating space for you know hospitality and whatever then I don't think the Philistines are going to come across so defensive like hey we're either fighting or we're, or we're slaves. Like there, and there's no alternative here. Um, They don't have a, an alternative of like hospitality or justice. They have a purely either they take us or we take them and that's it. And so they react out of that. And I'm like, okay, what are they reacting to? What have they seen? What's, what's the story being told about these Israelites that the Philistines react in such a strong posture of like basically almost self-defense. Like, we get them or they get us kind of thing.
1: I'm thinking about like a modern equivalent because it's so hard for us to think about the symbolism of something like the ark. but I'm, I'm thinking about prayer and I'm thinking about how it is not a bad thing to pray about our decisions or to pray for healing for people. Like there is a heart to prayer that is about bringing God's presence into a difficult circumstance, which would be what the ark would be. It's The heart would be bringing God's presence into a difficult circumstance. And there's a difference, though, between that good heart of prayer and of saying, this person must not have been healed because I didn't pray hard enough. Or this is going badly because I didn't pray about it where we
2: start to have it be a little bit more of a a formula or a vending machine or something
1: instead of a presence. And then that feels like a part of it, right? Is that there's something happening here where the ark has, ha- has a reputation amongst enemies and amongst the people of, oh, when the ark is here, we win. So we should go get the ark versus we're doing something hard. We
2: should make sure God's presence is with us. There's a very different mindset about what makes the power of
1: the ark or why the ark is important, which is God's presence here with us. Are we thinking about God as we're
2: taking this action? Are we doing what God would want us to do in this circumstance?
0: Yeah, I think it can also be like the difference between what some people would call justice and then what some might call restorative justice. Like restorative justice being this brings restoration to all parties involved including the one that causes harm and including the one that has received harm or like justice being purely punitive like somebody's just going to get what they're owed because they've done something wrong and you could kind of see the arc as the presence of god being a place for restorative justice but it's being used as a thing for like punitive like we win hmm. and
2: there's a difference between like bringing about wholeness
0: and bringing about victory. Mm -hmm. And it seems like the arc is being deployed for victory as opposed to wholeness.
2: Mm -hmm. Lisa, what have you been thinking? Well, I was thinking about like the, at certain times things feel really holy. Like, there are moments I can actually remember where, like, taking communion felt incredibly powerful. Um, Moving, like, it felt like it connected on all the ways that in my head is what communion should be about. But oftentimes, it's just, I'm thinking about the bread. Or whether it's grape juice or wine or, like, I'm thinking more about just the mundane part of it. and. When the, when the ark first comes on the scene, that's a big deal for a people group that doesn't, doesn't have a temple and have felt forgotten potentially for 400 years to actually have something where, where you can rely that on that God is housed there, that that's the presence of God is there, um, whether it's symbolic or real. That feels really powerful, and in, it would probably feel holy. Feels like you handle it differently. But as time wears on, and as activities like maybe it gets hard to carry, maybe it's cumbersome to protect it. It's big. It's, and it almost feels like it's in the background until until this crisis moment. Which sometimes I feel like, honestly, that feels like my prayer life. Sometimes,
0: <laughs> like
2: mm. it, or my dependence on God, or even being aware of God's presence, it's kind of in the background until something hits. And even in the middle of it, I'm very aware that it feels like it's a hail mary. <laughs> like I'm hoping for the magic eight ball. I'm hoping that like God does a thing here, even though I've maybe not done what I think I was supposed to do and. Like, it triggers a lot of, like, there's a lot of things I actually can resonate with the the movement in all this because faith is a, it's sometimes difficult to practice, sometimes difficult to, like, be in it. It's much easier to just be about the other parts of my life than to, like, try to incorporate spirituality or my faith into everything I'm doing. It's cumbersome. It gets heavy. It gets hard to carry all of it. Mm-hmm. So I just kind of want to set it down. But when I set it down, it's like, I don't pull it back up again until it's crisis mode. Hmm. And it, there's this weird thing with like, if you keep reading in the chapter, Eli is off like sitting and is worried about the ark, like his heart is Hmm. in fear of what's happening to the ark. And sometimes it feels like I know that position too. Like I can, I can sit there and go, oh, I sometimes think that about the church as a whole like holy buckets what are we doing what's happening what path are we on we can't we can't be doing this mm-hmm. and yeah it's this passage just has a lot of places where it feels actually really like i feel like i can connect to multiple characters and multiple layers in mm. all this leading up to mm-hmm. Well, and, and what makes me think of when you said that, Lisa, about it being
1: in the background until it's urgent is how even the fact that the Ark ends up being stolen might be a necessary loss for the people to wake up to what they had let fall into the background. Mm. Um, like, is it better if you're going to live as if God isn't with you? but you're going to pretend that God is with you by having a tabernacle with an ark inside. Is it better to just be honest and not have the ark anymore? So you got to grapple
2: with whether you care enough to get that ark back or whether you just want to live without it.
0: Which I think, you know, to extend the conversation we're having about the status of the church, in this moment there's a lot of articles being written about the decline of the church being this
2: catastrophe of values or, you know, lack of, you know, Christian presence in our nation or something. And uh, this is going to sound probably not healthy coming from a pastor, but to me, it's like about time. I, I'm going to, I think a pastor is the one who has to say it. So please keep going.
0: I think it's about time that the facade of, you know, this gospel of love and justice and grace that we say we represent, but we keep finding ways to make people feel shame and keep people away, don't make them feel a sense of belonging or love. And we champion you know, our, our nation more than we
2: champion our people. Mm-hmm. Um, and we, yeah, I, I,
0: to me, it's like, okay, let, let it, let it go. Like, let's let it, let, let, let some of it go. Like, I mean, I don't think it's like burn it all to the ground so we can see what's, and then we build something brand new. No, I think it's like a forest that just needs a cleansing fire now not everything burns down but mm-hmm. enough that the what's what's really going to you know stand is going to still be there and i think the church should still be here communities need places for people to feel a sense of belonging and like they're cared for and they have resources and there's things that churches can do that other places can't there's a story that we are telling from scripture that needs to have a place to be told too often it's not being told and that's, that's, what's the problem. And so, um, when we lose the actual gospel of grace,
2: then yeah, I'm like, okay, well your judgmentalism doesn't need to be here. So bye. Well, and that,
1: that makes me think about this progression of how the story is being told that Samuel is rising up in 1 Samuel three, and people are seeing him as a prophet. They're hearing what he has to say. And they're like, oh, this is from the Lord. But they're, but chapter four is like, ah, but stuff has to die before you really hear that. Like you're hearing, you're respecting, but you're not really hearing. And then chapter four is like, okay, Phineas is gone, Hapni is gone, Eli is gone, the ark is gone. And then it ends, that whole section ends with this line that, um, that Eli has died and he had judged Israel for 40 years. So we're triggered to that scriptural number of it's been 40. What's Something has finished dying and something is about to be birthed. Um, but that's a really hard story, and so then it's like into the women the the woman's story here because like I don't know to me then what it's doing is i I would expect in the way that scripture tends to be written that like he had judged Israel forty years, but the next sentence would be something like, so Samuel started speaking, <laughs> like there would be the okay, you're right you've lost everything. Now here comes the new beginning, but that's not what's next. What's next is this random little story about Phineas's wife and Ichabod. And like, why is this here? Cause it surprises me that this is what's next. The losses of the chapter don't surprise me because that's a part of the rhythm of things. There's stuff that has to
2: be flushed out, be seen. The heart is a part of the new beginning, but now here comes Phineas's wife Um one of the things that strikes me is what i already said which is
1: are we being challenged to not forget that all of that that looks so neat on Paper, or, as I just talked about, it has actual real- life consequences, like spiritually, we can say oh, it was time for Phineas to die, it was time for Eli to die, but actually, like that hurt, and there were people that were hurt by that, and like let's let it be
2: complicated um and it also makes me wonder what the women were seeing that the men weren't seeing,
1: and whether this is a chance to see that, because she names the child Ichabod. Which means without glory. So, kavod is the word for glory. It's a word that means heavy or weighty. So, the idea in the ancient world is like your wealth is weighed by a scale. Like if you've got if you're so so the so the word for glory is weighty because like that's how much gold you have is enough to weigh down a scale. So, weight and glory are tied into that word. That Phineas's wife responds to the Ark being gone as the glory of God being taken from them. And how is that seeing the Ark differently than those on the battlefield were seeing the Ark? That she's experienced the weight, experiencing the weight of God's presence has left us. And she's grieved about that as opposed to our lucky charm just was taken. So Kavod, what she names here that is gone is the words when they finished building the tabernacle in Exodus 40, and they put the Ark in the center of it, the book of Exodus ends by the Kavod, glory of the Lord, filling the place so much that there wasn't room for Aaron and Moses because the weight of God was too heavy in the tabernacle and
2: they left. Mm -hmm. Or like they um, should actually look at how it's actually phrased. I'm saying that wrong. But what it's making me think of is this woman knows that story. Like she knows the association of the Ark to glory and the, that glory presence of the Lord, the weighty presence of the Lord. Right. So while Phineas may not have known that, his wife did.
1: Right. So the Exodus, uh, the cloud covered the tent of, the, of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of the congregation because the cloud was on it. And the glory kavod of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Um, that's the emphasis is that the glory is filling the tabernacle. The kavod is filling the tabernacle. And that's what she means. That's what she's grieving. It's
2: oh, Well, it's overflowing the ark. It's filling the whole tabernacle. <laughs> right. Like, like an abundance of glory. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, and I think yeah, I like that idea of like being heavy. Right. It's not just like, it's like when you say an abundance of glory, I like, I like think of like a really sparklingly loud church service where everybody's happy and there's nothing ever wrong. And it's just glorious. Right. It's such like a a churchy word for like, we're all pretending that everything's great and we don't have any problems in life. But like, that's not the idea here. Right. Like when you say the glory of the Lord was upon that place, it's like a heaviness It's like a presence, which connotes something very different to me, because because hard things can feel that way, Mm -hmm. and like like things that matter feel that way. They feel heavy, Mm -hmm. and like sometimes like sometimes the greatest things come from the times of like where you feel heaviest, right? Like like movements of justice are born out of what's heavy, um, not
2: what's perfect and churchy. Mm -hmm. And, and it feels like to me that, that this woman who is unfortunately nameless is recognizing that God's presence should feel heavy and not trite or not, you know,
0: a little bit here, a little bit there when we need it, we'll have it but it's meant to be like an encompassing constant presence. And it looks
2: like Israel's lost that. Which, which then is such contrast to like when you use the word
1: trite, that does feel like how they're treating it on the battlefield. Like God feels trite there. God feels like a symbol of victory. Like you've named, whereas she's like, no, God is,
2: Weighty, and we've lost the weightiness of God's presence in losing the ark. We've lost. We've lost something really big here. One of the ways to think about weighty, besides the scale, is that um, so much of the language of,
1: of the Hebrew Bible goes back to agriculture, and so when you think about like blessings and curses, one of the things that one of the language pieces being used for that as a curse is light. Um, and it's because when you sift and winnow, you, you rub the grains together and the grain falls to the ground because it's heavy and the chaff is blown in the wind because it's light. And so there's multiple ways where it's the weighty thing that has value and the light that is valueless, um, or, tr- or trifling. And so to say like God's presence is described as heavy. It's weighty, it's important it's it it's the it's the seeds that you eat it's the it's the value it's the it's all of that, which is very different than shiny to your point it's also different than what's blown away and like her grief here is that it seems like that weightiness is gone. What do we do when the weightiness
2: of God's presence is gone? What's also yeah. fascinating to me is that that's what she's naming she's not naming the loss of her husband yeah. It's what she's grieved about is that the Ark is taken. She hears that, like she hears that the Ark is taken, that her
1: father-in-law and her husband are dead. She bows herself and she's in wrestling, but
2: then the naming is about the Ark being taken. Yeah. I mean, all this makes me wonder, like, is the weightiness or the glory of God is it present in the church at all today?
0: Mm. You know, I, I think I can ask you as an individual too, right? Is it, in, is it in my life? Okay. I could mm. ask that all day, but I like, I, I want to think systemically. I want to think culturally or whatever is the weightiness of
2: God in the church today. I don't know. I think it's interesting that for the, Just the women tell her that, um, you know, don't be afraid you have a son. And like sometimes missing, missing the forest for the trees. You don't worry that all the men in your life have died. You are going to have a son. So your son's going to take care of you. Like you'll be fine in some ways. Feels like that's the message that's being given. Like it's going to be okay. And our unnamed wife is saying, no. Like doesn't even respond to that because that's not even on the radar. The radar isn't, that's not the radar. (laughs) The radar is that the glory of God has gone, the Ark of the Covenant. Like this is bigger than my security. This is bigger than my provision. This, this This is so much bigger. And it feels like, I mean, it's weird that it's repeated twice, almost three times because the name says it the name is explained. And then she explains the name all like that. It is nailed down three times. You do not miss what has happened Mm -hmm. because of what's happened because of the story of this woman birthing this child. I, I think what's interesting too, is that, um, how
1: we read verse twenty-one of of the Kavod is departed from Israel because the Ark of God was taken because of her father-in-law and her husband. There's a way to read that as she's grieving both, or she's grieving that it was taken because of them. Like, is she grieving even her culpability in the Ark being gone and in the fact that she was a part of the family that lost
2: the Ark? Is she like owning the grief of her? partnership with this family that lost the Ark. Yeah, that would be a very specific form of
0: grief is coming to I mean, She's on her deathbed, right? I mean, that's the whole thing. She's like, as she was about to die from childbirth, she's seeing the end. If you're seeing the end and you realize, man, I was a part of a thing that Went way off the rails, and now the glory of God is no longer connected to it. That's a real grief. Like that—that's a very
2: scary place to be in. I'm curious. I was looking at Ark because I think Ark is an interesting. I don't know. So I'm interested, like Ark of the Covenant. Like, why do we call it that? What is? I mean, I know. In my head, I know what an arc is. I have an idea of things. But when I look to the root of ark, um, it looks like it's rooted in a raw, which is to pluck or gather. And when I think about like a gathering, it feels less like an action. Well, it gets still an action, but I feel, think of it as people. I don't know if that's a train of thought or not. Well, it's, it, it comes to like, how are we holding what the ark is,
1: which is really a part of like what we're seeing with this woman who names her son Ichabod is that she saw the ark as symbolizing the, hev- the weighty presence of God, which is now gone from their midst. It seems like the people were seeing the ark as symbolic of victory. Um, but what does God see the ark as? Why is it named the Ark? What's in the Ark? What's the purpose of the Ark that we saw? Is the truth either one of them? Is it somewhere in between? Is it both? Um, and there's this way that the that the Ark is set up to be the center of the gathering place. It is set up to to rest at the center of the tabernacle. And when the cloud comes to rest um it uh in the when the in the wilderness journeys that when the cloud moves they move and when the cloud stops they stop and when it stops it comes to rest not just where the tabernacle goes but it names that it actually comes between those two cherubim onto the ark that this is the center of the ark is the center of god's presence and that we are to be gathered around that center and that literally then in the wilderness, their tents are set up to all face that center. All of the tribes face the center, which is the tabernacle. And at the center of the tabernacle is the ark. And at the center of the ark is God's presence. And so it's this question of what are we gathered around? And
2: why are we gathered around that? What's at the center of how we gather? And what is the ark supposed to remind us of and all that? Well, and I think that's interesting because
0: throughout the book of Judges, there's this like decentering and then recentering pattern, right? They decenter, they go off this way, they go off that way, then the judge brings them back, and then they do the same thing. And that Samuel, as this prophet, is going to be the kind of like the one to maybe help recenter them. And I think it's easy for us on the outside because we don't have like an arc anymore to kind of be like well i mean it's just an I mean, we know god is spirit and god is always with us and all around us and so we don't really you know the ark thing i mean they 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 can kind of progress beyond the ark but yet we all like ritual and symbol matter like we we have those because humans can't just believe in the mystery of god we always have to create some level of meaning in order to know what the heck we're talking about, in order to connect and talk and theologize and to interpret and to create meaning and purpose, to move forward. And so symbols and rituals really matter. And so, yeah, we could say like, ah, they don't really need the Ark because God is with them. It doesn't matter. Like God will speak through a problem. But it did matter. It, it like It was supposed to be the focal point of how they understood themselves as a people who were supposed to be a blessing to all nations. Like that was the ideal. And yet they found themselves being the enemy of all nations and they weren't centered around the place of being gathered to the Lord's presence and gathered to the Torah. Instead, they were everywhere else and they were utilizing that as a weapon to bust out whenever they needed it. And so I mean, I think it's so tragic the way that they lost the element of like what centered them, which then makes me go, man, how are we not centered as a people? Mm
2: -hmm. Whether
0: that's on the cross, whether that's on uh, other rituals and symbols of our faith, like, how have we lost the centrality that we gather around? that gives identity and shape to the thing that we're supposed to be when we lose those things or they lose their meaning. And then we just toss them to the side and bring them out twice a year at Christmas and Easter or whatever. Then we're losing the essence and the heaviness of what this faith is supposed to be. Reach. <laughs> this is not like a
2: good sermon. <laughs> yeah. You're welcome. <laughs> I think that's like in seminary, they talk a lot about what you're gathered around. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's interesting to like, when we think about it from the terms of being responsible for creating that center or like making sure that everybody understands the center, it would just be really curious to me to ask people who go to church, what are you centered on? Mm-hmm. What's your center? If you were to describe the center of your gathering, what is it? Why is that? Well, and I love the beauty of the ark being the symbol of that center because it's, it's multiple things while being one thing. So the ark, like you could, like God could make it a
1: statue. God could make it right. Anything could be at the center. What's at the center is this box. Inside the box is manna from the wilderness, Aaron's budding staff, and the stones that God writes on in Mount Sinai. There are multiple things inside the box. On top of the box are these two cherubim facing one another, um, which another study for another time takes us back to Genesis 3.24 and that two cherubim are guarding the way back to the garden and that the whole box is symbolizing this way back to the garden and God's presence being there. In the communal, like there's something about when we, it it reminds me of what we're talking about with what glory is and isn't because none of those things are about like God smiting people or being so big or shine. It's like this, what's at the center is the story, the story of how things began in the garden, the story of how things, what, what was given at Mount Sinai, the story of how God provided in the wilderness. Center on that story, center at my presence in the middle of that story, and you'll have the right thing to center
2: around. And all of that becomes weighty. Um, which to me just feels... I don't know what the word is. Sort of surprising. Maybe it feels a little surprising mm. for how I tend to think about God or religion. but. It's not bigger, it's not showier. There's a simplicity to it. Mm -hmm. So we're coming up towards the end of our time. What do we get from the Ichabod story? What's here that we can remember or think about more? Where does it take us? Why is it here? There's some takeaways. I personally love that
0: question that Lisa just asked and that you're helping us kind of dive into by talking about the arc is kind of like, what are we gathered around as a community? Do we have anything that we are gathered around that? gives shape and meaning to, to our gathering, um, that speaks more than just like a statue would or
2: like a simple thing would, but like, yeah, that, that that truly tells the story of who we are and what we're here to do. Um, yeah, that's what I'm left wondering. Um, I think I'm thinking about how each of the items that's uh, contained inside the Ark are tangible reminders of God's presence. Like they each have different things that they do, but. And if I'm honest, I have those, I have some of my own things where I feel like I have moments of God's presence where it's felt tangible. Not a lot, but you know, like thinking about all the things there, there were three things in there. <laughs> it wasn't a lot for that whole community, but they're big ones. And I think I'm challenged with thinking about God's presence in community. Um, community has just been complicated for a long time. Expectations of what community is or is not and what you do with it. And so I'm just kind of pondering how how to look back over time to see God's presence in community and maybe even think about how to look for it moving forward, like in future spaces Um, and in particular paying attention for me now of I see God's presence most frequent when I'm inside of the prison. And so what's that invitation there of why <laughs> and what is that for me and for others and for community I I don't know why I'm stuck here so I'll just let it be true that I'm stuck here which is the placement of this story which is that like she right after it's named that he judged for 40 years, there's a woman who dies in childbirth. And that that feels like, I don't know. I don't know. It's it's frustrating to me, but also like frustrating in a way
1: that it's supposed to be frustrating. Like that's not what's supposed to come next. And like, what is in the invitation of like the frustrating placement of this? Like, what does it look like to see her? What does it look like to see to hold that space differently, and I think maybe maybe where it's landing for me is just the messiness of new beginnings, and that I want it to be a clean transition to Samuel's leadership. But there's real losses to grapple with in transitions and new beginnings, and there we need to take the time to see those stories and to grieve the losses as a part of
2: the transitions. Um, I think there's something in that to pay attention to. Brain. Okay, perhaps the most random podcast we have done. I don't know. Ichabod. Ichabod. Who knew? Ichabod. Who knew? Just ridiculous.
0: This podcast is a partnership between 40 Orchards and Processing Faith.
3: 40 Orchards invites people to wrestle through biblical texts using the ancient Jewish concepts of Midrash. In a 40 orchard study, every question is safe, everyone is welcome, and every voice is valued. We believe there's room for all of us. No person and no question is off limits because we know that together we can expand each other's experience of what is sacred, whole, and good. You can learn more about 40 Orchards and sign up for a study by going to 40Orchards.org. That's 40Orchards.org. Processing Faith is a space created by Jason Steffenhagen for people to do exactly that, process their faith. It's not one thing, but more like a good recipe. It's like one part pastoral care, one part theological exploration, and one part wrestling with all the questions. You can learn more about Processing Faith and sign up for a free 45-minute session by going to ProcessingFaith.com. Thanks again for joining us on Searching Safe.